Hi, it's your boy, and welcome to episode three of the podcast. Um, my neighborhood is super loud today. Uh, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I'm super noise sensitive. I've, I don't know if I've always been that way, but you know, especially in my adult life, anytime I hear noise, I just get sucked into it, and I start fixating on it, and it's, I mean, it's really distracting. Some people, like my girlfriend, for, for instance, can fall asleep anywhere. And she and I will literally be in bed, we'll have all the windows closed, and we'll be watching television, and I'll literally stop the TV and say, can you hear that? And she's like, no. And I can clearly hear somebody in the next building over practicing piano. And I had to stop and turn the TV off because I was so distracted by hearing it that I couldn't focus. And she literally can't hear it. Um... I bring this up because it sort of happened recently. We were, we were sleeping at her place and the downstairs neighbors on the other side of the building had their windows open in the middle of the night and they were listening to music and, you know, they were partying. I'm sure they had been drinking. And um, um, this was like in the middle of the week. Well, they did it, they did it twice. So there's two stories here. But um, the first time they did it, it was like a Wednesday night. And uh, I tried to put up with it. And finally, after like an hour of laying there, and I was just percolating. I was so mad. I was, my blood is just boiling because I realize it's something that is particularly bothersome to me. Like I, I just, I concede completely that I'm sensitive to noise and I'm, and I'm more sensitive to it than most people. But at the same time, the reason I, I'm more than just annoyed. I mean, the reason I fixate on it is because of the type of person I am. And I'm not saying it's entirely good, but what I can say is that I am hyper-conscious of how other people experience me. And the reason I live, um, you know, my, my personal living situation is I live alone and I live in a unit that's completely detached. It's a cottage-type um, uh, domicile. <laughs> I don't really know what to call it. It's a cabin-like domicile um, uh, in the backyard of somebody's home. And the reason I live here, and I even paid a little bit more to live here, is because when I'm in an an apartment, I I could not stand hearing just the noise of other people near me. And it's not just, you know, situations like the other night um, where people are playing music or partying or being loud. It's everything. That You know that muted conversation sound where somebody's in the next room over and they're just talking, but you hear that... "Mm Mm, mm, mm. dude i can't stand that it drives me to distraction if i'm trying to do anything else and i can hear that it kills me or like um uh just the sound of people walking is annoying to me and because i'm so hyper aware of other people doing it and i'm aware and i'm aware that it bothers me it makes me hyper conscious about what i'm doing because the fact that i can hear them lets me know that they can hear me so I spend most of my time tiptoeing around my place or, you know, wanting to listen to the TV or the music, but I'm constantly like turning it down. And the reason that is a volatile situation is because, um, I'm not saying you have to live this way, but because I do, and it's the, just the type of person I am, uh, and maybe I'll have more thoughts about why that is, but, um, because that's the type of person I am and I work so hard considering what other people are, I, I, I'm, because I'm so hyper-conscious of how other people are experiencing me, when other people act the complete opposite way, where they just sort of live with, um, um, they're just sort of free. They don't, they, they don't seem to care how much noise they're making. They don't seem to care what effect it has on other people. I get so resentful. And uh, it really makes it worse, <clears throat> you know, especially if I'm trying to sleep 
And um, you know what? <clears throat> I'm stopping right now because <clears throat> what I'm literally thinking is I don't think this is going well. Like I'm sitting here talking and I even tried to close, you couldn't see this obviously, but I literally tried to close my eyes for a second and try to like um, distract myself. And I don't know what it is, but it goes back to what I was talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was like either, I don't know if it was the last episode or the episode before that. But I was talking about when you're getting on a topic of something that is uncomfortable, your brain starts shutting down. And I literally felt that. And it's, it literally felt like these moments when I'm on stage sometimes, like when you're just completely comfortable, loose, you're just not even thinking about it. But if you're on stage and for one moment you actually start thinking about what you're doing, things can get very hairy very quickly. And what I mean by that is, you know, if if you're on stage and you start to feel self-conscious, you can literally feel this feedback loop where once you become self-aware and you start being aware of, you know, how you're sounding, how you're coming across, anything, like, am I breathing enough? Like, it, it become you literally start to feel your thoughts mount. It's like, if you've ever smoked weed and you had, you know, you got paranoid or you had a bad experience. I mean, I've never done, like, psychedelics, so I don't know what a bad trip feels like. But if you've ever, um, you know, your, you, you, your brain starts going down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and you can literally feel your thoughts spilling over and you're trying to go, whoa, 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 let's come back, let's come back to reality, and then you just sort of fall in. <laughs> That's literally how it feels sometimes. And um, I think the most recent time that happened to me was when I was actually in Los Angeles. And it's sort of funny because, you know, it's so funny. I, I, I've, I've mentioned this person a couple times now on the podcast. He's a comedian in, in Los Angeles named Aaron Marsh. And he and I, um, and I, I certainly didn't mes- mention this when I mentioned him the last time. But when I was living in Tucson, Arizona, he and I played our first shows together. He was doing music at the time. And we played our first shows together. And um, we. And, and the only reason that's important is because when I was in Los Angeles most recently, um, opening for Matt Nathanson at, um, I think it was a place called the, El, the Rio, or maybe that's a venue in San Francisco. I can't remember. But, um, you know, it's a decent-sized venue in Los Angeles. He and I hadn't seen each other in forever. And I knew he was doing comedy. I had followed him on social media or whatever. But uh, we met up, uh, I just happened to be outside the venue. I was like taking a picture of the awning before the show and I had invited him and um, he came and he happened to be waiting outside for his date. And uh, so we just started talking and getting caught up on, hey, what are you doing? And he made an interesting observation, which he's like, are you nervous? And I was like, no. And he's like, yeah, you don't seem nervous. And I just made a point to him to say, yeah, you know, uh, when I, before I did these shows I, uh, with the, on the Matt Nathanson tour, I hadn't been doing a lot of shows. And so I was really nervous then when I, that when I started doing them, it, it felt like I had signed up for a marathon that I hadn't been training for. And my, my absolute biggest fear was that I, went, that I was going to step on stage and have one of the experiences like I'm describing to you, which is I would freak out. I'd start to implode. And I've, I've never had a full-blown failure on stage. I've never had a, like a meltdown where I literally couldn't continue. But my concern was that I would be in that experience and and just the fact that it was happening in front of uh, a much larger audience than I'm used to, that that would be, that would cause me to implode. And I was worried that like, I I don't know, you start telling yourself these horror stories like, oh, I'm worried I'm going to just break down completely. I'm not going to be able to finish. It'll be like that scene from the movie where someone starts 
you know, uh, the, the, the microphone starts feeding back and the, uh, the lights in their eyes and they start squinting and, and all of a sudden they go, I, 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 I can't do this. And they walk off stage. Um, I never had anything like that, but going before this tour, that's what I was telling myself about. And I was so happy that when I started doing the, the tours, it was nothing like that. There was always a few butterflies before going on stage, but the moment I got on stage, I always felt very comfortable. Once I, you know, a couple bars into the first song. And so I was really happy that that was happening. But even as I was talking to my buddy Aaron, and he had some great insights for being a comedian as well. And he even gave me some advice or he told some anecdotes about, you know, more famous comedians that he had met who had great advice for him about performing. And I think, I think comedy, even more than music probably, is one of those things where you really have to cultivate a sense of who you are on stage, how you're being perceived. Um, but that's actually not it. I think, I think the point I'm actually trying to make is something more about confidence. And um, it's not something you can fake. I mean, you can certainly exude confidence. You, or mm, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, but you can certainly be comfortable on stage. But there's a, there's a true nonchalance that comes with real confidence that you can't fake. You know, any, anyone with some experience can be, you know, comfortable on stage. Maybe that's a better word for it. But to be truly confident, I think you have to have done something so many times that you exude a true, you dude, even as I'm saying it, I'm trying to like <laughs> calm myself down to affect whatever it is I'm talking about. But um, there's a true nonchalance that comes from experience that you just can't fake. And as an audience member, you can feel it. I think other, you know, if you're a, you know, quasi-experienced performer, you can certainly spot it in other people. Um, I keep going back to comedy for some reason. I don't know why. I'm not a fucking expert at comedy at all. But um, when I see comedians uh, at an open mic, you can sometimes you can tell the experience someone has by how they hold the microphone. And uh, and it's like the minute somebody takes the stage and how they hold the microphone, you can tell, oh, this guy's done this a ton. Or uh, if they hold the microphone like really tight and kind of at a weird angle, you go, oh, this is like a new performer. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is what? There was something, as I was having this conversation with Aaron outside the theater, I was concerned because I don't know if it's just that I know my own wiring or it was just inevitable. But as I was having this conversation with him, I was thinking, there's something in the room, not in the room, I don't know how to describe it. There was, it, it, was, it was bringing up something in me that I wasn't entirely conscious of, but I wasn't enjoying and it's nothing against him. It was just as I, you know, we sort of said our goodbyes and I sort of walked back into the theater and went up to the green room. I was just aware of this certain something that was now a part of me. And I think it was, you know, it's, it's probably an expectation because, you know, Aaron says, hey, you look comfortable. I'm like, hey, I feel comfortable. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go out there and be comfortable. And now it was like I had set an expectation. And oh, and it was like, now I knew there was somebody in the audience who was looking at me to be comfortable. And that made me hyper-conscious about how comfortable I was coming across. You know, when you step out on stage on these bigger theaters, you can kind of see the first couple rows, but really it's the black room that you're playing to. And, uh, you know, it could, you know, I've never played like thousands of people, but you know, the rooms varied in size. There was some as small as a few hundred and there were some as big as a thousand, but they all sort of felt the same, honestly. But the, but really the point of all this is when I got on stage for that show in Los Angeles, halfway into the first song, I had a moment where the, the feedback loop started 
and my, my thoughts started cycling and I was very aware of how I was coming across. And the worst part about it is you're in that moment, you're telling yourself, dude, drop it. But you feel this, I don't know if it's like the sensation of losing your balance, but it's, you literally feel yourself detaching from where you were a moment ago. And the minute you try to get back there, it's almost like you're already doomed. And it doesn't mean you're going to crash and burn, but it does mean you have to do some sort of safety maneuvering to get back to a comfortable place. Maybe not where you were before, but like another footing. Like almost like if you're crossing a river and you're like stepping on stones and you start to slip, you just got to catch your balance somewhere. And it doesn't mean you can get back to where you were, but you got to land somewhere. And especially when you're singing and so much of it depends on, I mean, I guess if you're doing stand-up comedy and you're just talking, you can take a breath, get a drink of water, but if you're singing, I think what locks you in, and I, I talk about it this way sometimes, but when you're in those moments and it's a song or music, you feel like you're on a roller coaster and you feel the cart start to shake. And there's a certain amount of shake that's sort of inevitable, but if it got any bigger, you'd start to feel like you were in trouble. I mean, your true fear would start to sort of, and it would trigger real fear. And that's the sort of sense when you're on stage sometimes, which is you gen- you start to get genuinely concerned for yourself. And, um, you know, the only thing that you can do in those moments is, for music anyway, because, be- oh, I think what I was trying to say is because of rhythm, because you're sort of chained to the rhythm of the song, you know, rhythm is the most... Um, I don't know. I was going to say pri- I was going to say primitive, but I think I just meant primal things. And if the, if the if the rhythm's not locked in, people are going to notice. And if the rhythm starts to fluctuate, it, people are just even if they don't realize it consciously, they're going to sort of start to fall away a little bit. So there's literally times when I've been on stage and I'm singing where I know there's a break in the lyric coming up and I feel myself like your breath starts to get a little strange. You're struggling to make it to the ends of phrases. Maybe you start feeling your mouth drying out. And maybe it'll be maybe maybe it'll be between the first and second verse. Maybe it's at the end of a phrase. Maybe it's you know at the end of the chorus, and you have a little break between the second verse, where I'll literally think, especially for me, because I'm on stage with just my voice and my and my guitar. I don't have a band to hide behind. It's all me. There will be moments where I have to stop and think. You need to get it together right now. And I know people say that, but I mean literally, you need to get it together. Right now, you have a measure to pull yourself together. And it's like sometimes you're playing guitar, and which is pretty automatic. I, I, I never really have like guitar um, breakdowns because it's very simple, honestly. But it's like I'll pull away from the mic and it can just be like I take a deep breath and I just, and it's like in that moment, I have to get somewhere. I have to land somewhere where I can finish the song. And I'm not saying it's noticeable to anybody in the audience. I mean, I think, I think other performers are locked into this stuff because they just, they see it. Um, they've been through it. They're looking for different things, you know, and I'm not even saying it ruins a song. It's just something that you're hyper conscious of as a performer, but, um, it can feel, it's like a high wire act sometimes. And that's what it feels like. But, um, so I'm not even sure if I made that point clearly, but I, I was trying to articulate how I was feeling a moment ago where I was talking and all of a sudden I started feeling self-conscious and if i'm i do i don't i honestly don't even know what i was talking about um was i talking about my neighbors making noise or my, my girlfriend's neighbors making noise <sighs> yeah who even cares um if i was 
I'm not really sure there's anything else to be said about it. Um, but while I'm sort of, um, I don't know, transitioning out of whatever I was talking about, um, I want to say thanks. I want to say thanks to the people who listened so far to the other episodes. Um, I, I'm just, you know, it just, it, it's a new thing for me. It's, it's kind of vulnerable. Um, and I don't want to play into that too much. I, I'm, I, the truth is I'm really enjoying it. I'm having fun. I like thinking about it. I like, um, sitting down to record it and I like putting it out there. And I know it's strange and a lot of people, you know, uh, you know, are connected to me because of my music, but for where I'm at in my life right now, this is something I'm really excited about and I'm not going to stop doing the music. The music is still coming and uh, I'm going to be releasing as much music as ever. But, um, this is also something I'm really excited about. So like I said, excuse me, like I've said, <clears throat> I've committed personally to a hundred episodes of this. So, um, we'll see where it takes me. Um, I think eventually what I'd like to get to for this episode is my buddy, Brad Sansenbacher, who's a local musician out here, um, wrote a short story called the lava claim. And, uh, he had it published online somewhere. I'm not even sure of the website. I think it's a comedy website, but I got I got to tell you about this guy which is he is so funny. And I don't I'm sure you I hope you have people like this in your social media feed, but you know, everybody tries to be funny on social media or people try to make little quips and and what I freaking hate is people who talk in internet speak and basically they're just parroting back, you know, whatever the trendy internet talk is. Like right now, one thing I see everywhere and I looked into it and I realized it's been around for a while. So I don't know if I'm just like a grandpa and I'm just seeing like the tail end of this trend. But I feel like I didn't see it before, and now for the last week I've seen it a hundred times, is it me. You know, people sharing an article or or some meme, and they just go, it me, instead of it's me, it me. I see that everywhere. And I was, dude, I was talking about this with my girlfriend when we were in bed, and I don't think she really got what I was trying to say. But I was, I was explaining this thing, like, I hate people who talk in internet speak, and one thing I keep, or I, you know, uh, I, I see it less now, but I was hearing all the time now is people were describing something as a dumpster fire. And I think it was like around the new year, this dumpster fire of a year or whatever. And I was like, you read someone, you, you saw someone type that and you thought it was cool. And now you're just going to weave it into your own conversations. And that's, I'm not, I'm not saying that's horrible, but what is strange to me is when people, you know, they think they're being creative or funny. You know, they think that they're contributing something when they're not. They're just parroting back what somebody else does. Um, so anyway, I, I'm sure your Facebook feed and your social media is ubiquitous. And like, it's all like, you know, get after it and you can do this. And all these like, there's no sincerity anymore. You know, everything's snarky and everything's sarcastic and everything is some cute quip. And like animated GIF comments I've, are the worst to me. Like when somebody says like, you know, uh, I don't know, somebody will put something on Facebook and, and the comment will be just some animated GIF. You know, it's like popular culture is just this echo loop of like recycling itself, which is just bizarre. And nobody's saying anything. Everybody's like expressing their emotions by proxy of something else that we have a common experience of. And there's, so there's like no depth to it, you know? And uh, yeah, anyway, that's probably a conversation for another time. But the dude who stands out to me, because every time he posts something and I see it on Facebook, it is either incredibly thoughtful and poignant or super funny. And not just like like chuckle funny, like smart, intelligent, like deeply funny. And that dude is Brad Sansenbacher. And I first met Brad doing music. Um, me and my buddy Tom, who I did mention, and um, I'm pretty sure it was the last episode. 
actually by this time it'll be two episodes ago but um my buddy tom rhodes the musician um there was some venue in the tenderloin area of san francisco and i, I forget what it was called now but um we were shooting a video there and uh me and tom were both into shooting videos and so we just went into the space and took turns shooting each other playing some songs um uh, so we would have some content for the internet or whatever and Tom had reached out to this dude, Brad Sansenbacher, to to be one of the camera guys because Brad had done some camera work for, I don't know, some creative or even, I don't know, work project that he does. That was the first time I met him. But he's also a great musician, so you should check out his stuff. But we've just been linked up on social media ever since. And, he, and he'll do these sort of thoughtful, you know, sort of paragraph graph length um, posts, either about politics or encounters he's had in his life. And I've always thought, this dude is a great writer. And he has something that, well, it's easy to say, but it's hard to articulate, which is when he writes, he has a real voice. And it's the type of thing that most people who want to be creative writers spend, you know, the first 15, 20 years of their writing career trying to cultivate. And a lot of them never even find it. But he has a real voice. And it's hard to really make that point when you can really only talk about it by proxy. But it's like, if you've ever read George Saunders and, um... I sort of fell off with George Saunders for a while. I read his most recent novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, and I loved it. But his couple books before that, I just, I just didn't enjoy that that much. Um, things like In Persuasion Nation and Brain Dead Megaphone, or whatever. I think those are the titles. Th- those collections never really got to me. But his first two collections, Civil Warland and Bad Decline and Pastoralia, are some of my. Uh, I mean, I, I, I just go to those like every five years or so. I'll read those. Um, but. Brad Sansenbacher has a sort of George Saunders like quality, whereas he sort of takes something absurd and he makes it completely believable. Um, George Saunders has, well, I mean, a lot of his stories are this way, but he has a story called the wave maker falters. And there's something about this story, the lava claim, which I'd like to read to you um, that has that sort of absurd, but completely realistic and, and told very matter of fact quality about it. And uh, yeah, so he wrote this story, The Lava Claim. I read it. I think it's phenomenal. And I wanted to share it with people. But I know if I share it, no one's going to read it because nobody reads anything anymore. And everybody pretends to. Like, <clears throat> all the time in conversation, people are like, oh, oh, I read an article about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I read this article about blah, blah, blah. And I go, you didn't read it. You read the headline. So, I mean, believe me, I've done it too. I'm not just uh, making fun of other people. I mean, I've done it too. But I know that's what people are doing. Everybody's saying, oh, I read this article about such and such. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You did not read that article. You read the headline. Um, but anyway, we're all, we're all guilty of it. But I'm going to read this story to you. And um, afterwards, I want you to find Brad Sansenbacher online. I want you to tell him how much you liked it, because you will. But uh, now, I guess we're going to make room for a reading of The Lava Claim by Brad Sansenbacher. I had to call my insurance company the other day to file a claim. Crouching on my kitchen table, I explained eagerly to the agent on the phone that when I got home from work, I discovered that my floor was made of lava. The following morning, they sent out a claims adjuster, and I followed him as he hopped from the doorway to our couch and stood on the cushions while he scribbled notes onto a form on a clipboard. After a moment on the couch, he stepped gingerly onto the coffee table, then onto an ottoman. He squatted down low, 
and hovered his hand a few inches above the lava for a fast second to confirm its heat, and quickly pulled it away. He scratched his chin with the tip of his plastic insurance pen and considered the scene for a moment. This is pretty bad, he said, and jotted down a few more notes. When did you say this happened? I explained that I had found it the previous night when I'd gotten home from work. Interesting, he said, and paused for a moment while he leafed backward through the paper on his clipboard. My notes say it was during the day. I found it in the evening after work, I repeated, but but, but it must have happened during the day. I started to lose my balance as I spoke, so I springboarded one foot onto a book that I left on the floor, then bounced onto a chair in the kitchen where I stood on its seat. The blades of the ceiling fan rotated nearby, just below my eyeline. So you called right when you got home, he asked. I began to explain that of course I did, but then I paused and recalled that I, I might have taken a shower first. He repeated the shower part while scribbling notes, carefully making sure he'd heard me correctly. So, you get home, the floor is lava, you take a shower? I explained that I had come from tennis and it was tournament night and I, 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 I'd been sweaty. He tapped the end of his pen against his temple and scanned the notes. I thought you had just come from work. With a hint of impatience, I explained that I go to tennis directly from work, which is my normal routine. I apologized for my omission. And how did you get to the shower? What? The floor is lava, right? How do you get to the shower? The books, I said, a little embarrassed. I gestured to the pathways of books that ran through the house. I had arranged them approximately a step length apart, standing on each to lay down the next. These crude pathways ran into the bedroom, bathroom, and kitchen, and allowed me to live somewhat normally while navigating the molten floor. The insurance man scanned them with his eyes. Of course, he said. I would have done the same thing. Then he paused, suddenly, as if an important detail had just occurred to him. His eyebrows raised in a crooked arch. And the shower isn't lava. I explained to him that I didn't understand the exact mechanics of it, but the shower somehow appeared to be its own thing. The shower is like, it, it's like its own thing, I said, and I gestured to the pathway of books and invited him to check it out if he wanted. He waved me off with a flick of his pen and a smirk as if to say, this ain't my first rodeo. I watched him write down more notes for a moment, then cleared my throat and cut to the chase. Is this covered in my policy? I asked. He underlined something he had written with a few hard strokes of his pen, then looked up at me. Lava floors are always tricky, he explained, and wiped a thick bead of sweat from his brow. First, we'll need to identify the source of the lava. If it's internal, which isn't necessarily uncommon, it should be no problem. But, he said, and paused glancing out the window, if the lava came from outside the house, that's where there can be some gaps in coverage. What kind of gaps? I asked. Well, for example, if it came from a known active volcano, it would fall under disaster insurance, which I I don't see here in your policy. So, unless you have a disaster policy from another carrier, that would likely be an out-of-pocket expense, he said flatly. But, he started again, and his tone improved to a hint of optimism. If the volcano was on a neighbor's property, we can always go after their insurance for damages. So try not to worry. There are usually options. I joined his gaze over the living room floor and out the window. From where I stood on the kitchen chair, I could see over my neighbor's fence. 
and a gentle breeze was blowing the swings on their kids' playset. Beyond their yard, a yellowing cornfield rolled gently over a small hill. That makes sense, I said, but I'm pretty sure there are no volcanoes around here. Exactly, he said with an assuring tone. That's why we won't jump to any conclusions until we get an inspector out here. After another moment of scribbling some notes, he said that he had all of the information he needed, and I'd get a call soon to schedule a visit from an inspector who specializes in what he called these kinds of things. He stepped off of the ottoman and back onto the coffee table, then sprung with one foot off a book and out the front door. I stepped off my chair and onto another thick book, then sprung off one leg to meet him outside on the stoop. I thanked him for coming out and watched as he walked towards his white fleet car, then yelled after him to ask when he thought the inspector would be able to make it out. He said, it shouldn't be more than two days. Astonished, I asked what exactly I was supposed to do until then. If your claim is approved, any hotel expenses will come out of your deductible, he yelled back. Or, he chuckled, (laughs) you can keep hopping around on books. He slid into his car, started the engine, and backed out of the driveway. Despondent, I spun back into the house, hopped across several books, and flopped backwards onto the couch. For a long moment, I stared at the beams of the ceiling while molten rocks hissed around me. Insurance, I thought. (laughs) What a goddamn racket. Wasn't that good, folks? As I was thinking about the lava claim, I mean, it sort of hit me at the right time, too, because I've had the most stressful, irritable week, and it's a couple things. And maybe I was talking about uh, my girlfriend's neighbors making noise. I I genuinely can't remember now. I've I've literally thought and complained about it so much that I, I don't even know if I was literally talking about it 20 minutes ago, or uh, if I'm just remembering that because I've talked about it so much. Um, But this has been a super irritable week for me. And part of it was my girlfriend's downstairs neighbors were being super noisy. Woke me up three times this week. And the first time it happened, I was like laying in bed, just like stewing my own juices. And finally I was like, you know what? Forget this. I'm going to go home. And I leave. I'm like putting my pants on angrily. And my girlfriend wakes up and she's like, what's going on? I was like, you know, I'm going home. (laughs) And she's like, why? And I was like, I can't take it anymore. I can't take this noise. And of course, she's like, I can't hear it. And uh, God bless her heart. I, I really wish I had what she has, but um, I just don't. I'm hyper-conscious about all this stuff. And as I leave, I like knock on the door. And it was, I don't know why I did this. Actually, I think I, do, I think I do know why I did this, which is I knew I was going home. I was like, okay, they've won. I'm admitting defeat. I'm going home. And I thought, you know, and I knew I was going to stew about it. I knew I was going to think about this. And I just thought, what can I do for myself within the bounds of, of re- that's reasonable to feel better about this? And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to go home, if I'm going to make that concession, if I'm not going to stay, I got to at least say something. And I don't know if I'm doing that for myself. I'm not sure if I'm doing it for the other people in the building. I, I don't know. But I thought if you at least you know, you know, cause it's so easy to walk away. Like, like I knew I was leaving honestly on some deeper level. I knew I was leaving to avoid the confrontation of having to knock on their door and ask them to be quiet. So I said, okay, even if I do go, I still have to do that. Cause if I go now and don't say anything, I'm going to feel doubly bad. One, I'm, I'm going to be upset that I had to leave and go home and I'm going to feel bad that I didn't say anything. I'm going to be angry at myself for, for not standing up for myself and being kind of a coward. 
So I do that. I just knock on the door. The dude opens the door. He peeks his head out. And I go, hey, man, could you guys keep it down, please? And like maybe turn in for the night. I think it was like, dude, I think it was like three in the morning. And he was like, cool. And uh, I ended up leaving, but I did check in with my girlfriend. And I guess like right after that, they, they kept it quiet. So, um, so that was good. But literally like three days later, another person in my girlfriend's building tries to have an altercation with me. And I mean, real quickly, I'll try to explain what happened. I'm not sure if you'll be able to picture this, but my girlfriend is in an apartment outside of her building is like an intercom system, which you use to page whatever tenant in the building you're trying to reach and their phone, their it's wired to their cell phone will ring and they can buzz you in from their cell phone. So I'm standing there. I punch my girlfriend's thing in and it's, and you can hear the intercom as like, a, there, there's no phone to pick up. It literally just, you know, plays out. So everybody in the world can hear whatever is happening on the intercom. So you can hear this ringing, right? It's sort of, you know, emitting from the thing. And all I have to do is wait for my girlfriend to just like press a button on her cell phone and I get buzzed in. This other dude is standing kind of looming out in front of the entrance. And I'm thinking, oh no, this guy's waiting for me to get buzzed in so he can just walk in behind me. And I don't, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know if he lives here. I don't know if he's, you know, he didn't necessarily look homeless, but I was like, I don't, I, you know, I just, I literally don't know who he is. And I know they've had problems with people like stealing packages out of their building. So what I'm dreading is about to happen in five seconds is my girlfriend's going to buzz the door. This guy's going to try to walk in behind me. And I feel like I have to do the thing where I go, Hey man, do you live here? And if the answer is no, like I'm going to have to say, Hey dude, I, I, I hope you understand, but like, I really don't feel comfortable like letting you in the building behind me without really knowing who you are. And so I'm dreading this whole exchange, but I'm standing there and the thing's ringing and it's ringing and it's ringing. And this guy's just sort of looming and I just give him a look, you know, like, um, I'm not even, I'm just sort of taking him in, you know, and I'm actually trying to appear non-threatening because I feel like I'm, I'm about to have to do something potentially uncomfortable. So I'm trying to cut, dude, it's strange. I'm actually, as I'm standing there in my body language, I'm trying to come across as friendly. And I don't know what, I don't know what the fuck that means, but that's what I'm trying to do. And after about the third or fourth ring, he just crosses in front of me, hits the hang up button on the intercom, dials whoever he knows in the building and waits for them to buzz, buzz us in. And I am sort of like dumbstruck. And I'm like, uh, oh, hey, man, I think you hung up on the person I was calling. And I want to be fair to the guy, but I was so, fl- I, like, I don't know, I don't, I'm, I'm not confident I'm fully remembering the sequence of events because I was so flustered. And I was, oh, hey, man, I think you, yeah, I think you just hung up on the person I was calling. And I don't think he said anything at first. And I just give him a look like, are, are you going to address what I'm saying at all? And I think what he said at that point is, hey, man, I'm trying to get us in the building. And I was sort of standing there trying to process what he, like, what he meant. Because what seemed clear to me at that time is he's like, oh, I'm going to buzz someone who's going to let us in. And I'm like, I mean, obviously, I think my sense is he was just impatient of hearing my thing ring over and over again. He wasn't confident that my girlfriend was going to buzz us in. So hung up and I guess almost thought he was doing me, me a favor by buzzing someone who was going to let us in for sure. Now, I knew my girlfriend was going to let us in. So regardless of what he thought, how, how am I supposed to know what he's thinking, right? Like, how could what he's doing not come across as aggressive to me? How could it not come across as aggressive to me? And he has to be aware of that. But I don't think I say anything. I think I'm literally just like, has my face scrunched up, like trying to compute what exactly is taking place here. 
And as I'm thinking, the door buzzes. Whoever he has paged now lets us into the building. And I just give him a look like, dude, I don't know what the fuck's going on, but I'm just going to walk in behind you. And so he walks through the door, and then I walk through the door right behind him. And right past the door is a stair is a stairwell. There's like some mailboxes right there. There's literally, there's ostensibly nowhere to stand. It's like two people on the landing would be crowded. So he takes two steps up the stairs. I close the door behind me. And when I turn, to th- turn back to ascend the stairs myself, he turns around, looms over me in sort of an aggressive posture and says, hey man, do you and I have a problem? And I know you don't know me. And the truth is I'm not an aggressive person. I'm irritable, I'm cantankerous, but I'm not a physically aggressive person. Talk about percolating. I immediately feel my blood boil. But what I actually do is just smile at him and say, no. And he goes, okay, man, I just wanted to make sure. And I was like, good. And he turns around and he walks up the stairs and thankfully he was getting off at the first stop, but he turns left and then I go up, you know, however many floors in my girlfriend's place. Um, now I, first of all, I'm so glad I told this story to my brother because I, I, what I worry is most people hearing that story would say, what's the big deal? You just had a brief encounter with somebody. But when I told the story to my brother, he was like, before I even like could continue, he said, dude, my blood is boiling just listening to that. And I was like, thank you, dude, thank you. One, me and my brother are sort of the same person. So I'm not surprised that he and I are in the same boat about this. But I think, I, I don't know if it's a guy thing. I don't know what you want to call it. But there's something primal about that. When some dude says, hey man, do we have a problem? Oh man, I, I, I mean, it was like immediate, like a Bunsen burner had just been lit inside my stomach and immediately my blood was boiling. And the worst part about all of this is it's like the only thing I've thought of since it happened. Oh man. And I've already felt like I've talked about it too much and I don't even know if this is good content for a podcast, but it's the only thing I thought of for the last week. And all I can think about is what I wish I would have said. And it has nothing to do with like, oh, I wish I would have told him to to uh, uh, go shove it up his ass or yeah, you motherfucker, I got a problem. Let's take it outside. Dude, it was nothing like that. Like, I love taking the Jedi perspective. I love being like, like um, I'm thinking like David Carradine in Kung Fu. You know, like, or all the, all the Kurosawa, like, samurai movies, like, you know, all the thugs come up and they think, hey, we're going to get this guy. Or like, you know, in the Old West, you know, a stranger comes into town standing at the bar and people are intimidating him and he either outsmarts them or he like, well, generally he ends up kicking ass and taking names. But the point is, is he's super cool about it, you know? So I actually pride myself on being the type of person who can sort of navigate these situations like an adult rather than like get in a fight. Because the truth is what, obviously what bothers me about the situation is, here is this dude who I think is a dipshit walking away. And what, dude, what I fixate on is I don't want him to think he has a victory. 
You know, he intimidated me. And I know according to his world and his game and his rules or whatever, you know, if I respected myself, I would have told him to go fuck himself. And yeah, I got a problem and let's take it outside. But obviously I play by a different set of rules. And so for me, I thought my victory was I took the high road. And look, I'm sure most people who listen to this are decent people and they'd probably say, yeah. But what I'm trying to talk about is how unfulfilling that is. Yeah, I took the high road, whatever. But how unfulfilling that is. Because what I think, because he's a dipshit, is that he walked away thinking, yeah, I fucking showed that motherfucker, that bald, bug-eyed, short bastard. And what I wish I would have said, and I'm not saying it wouldn't have escalated the situation. I'm not saying he would have appreciated it because he's a dipshit. But what I wish I would have said is something like, dude, I don't know if we have a problem, but we certainly have a misunderstanding. You know? And just, I think in the same way that even if it didn't change anything, at least I would have been able to say how I feel. Dude, this is getting so cathartic and so like (laughs) hippy-dippy. But at least I would have been able to express my emotions, you know? At least I would have been able to, even if it didn't get heard, I would have said it. Because in that moment, and maybe it was actually the best response. Like sometimes I beat myself up for like what I do, but maybe it's because that I, there's also another part of me that's on autopilot that realizes if I do say anything else, this it, like it's a self-preservation thing or like maybe regardless of how I feel later, there was something about me that actually knew what the right thing to say in that moment was, which was, nope, we don't have a problem and just sort of go about my life and take the loss or whatever you want to call it. Even if it was a moral victory, it was sort of in this scenario, I, I did kind of have to stand down a little bit. But anyway, it wounds my pride. It wounds my whatever, my, 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 I don't, my, my machismo, my masculinity, like whatever. It's, so it's all of that. But it's also, and I don't think I'm the only one who suffers from this phenomenon. But of course, thinking afterwards, thinking of what you wish you would have said. Actually, I spent a lot of last episode talking about disaster piece. Rich Vreeland, and uh, I'm going to hate that I, that I don't know what the phrase is now, but he came over one time to do a, my other podcast from years ago called Shut Up Songwriters, and he played a song, the title was French, and the French have a phrase for this, and I forget what it means, but it's something like the memory of the staircase. Um, I'll look it up and I'll realize it's, it's not that, but the, it's something like the memory of the staircase, which is, um, you know, you have a situation and when you're halfway down the stairs, you think of what you wish you would have said. And, uh, so that's kind of what that experience was. Um, but yeah, super frustrating. And dude, would you believe I spent like a whole time in therapy? Like, like I know I'm talking about it now. You think I would have gotten out of my system? I literally spent a whole therapy session talking about this. Oh man, geez. It's unbelievable. It's the type, those are the types of moments where I realize like, this is kind of like a movie you know, my therapy sessions can feel like a movie. Like sometimes they're like real therapy sessions. And then sometimes I feel like, oh, this is why people make fun of therapy. Because it's people talking about mundane everyday shit that, you know, you know, I feel like they should have the skill set to handle, but they're really paying a stranger to fucking listen to what their, their, their feelings about this. Anyway, that doesn't encapsulate all my feelings about it, but that's how you think of like someone who hates therapy. That's what they would think. And, and that's a part of my own thinking sometimes too. Um, but yeah, frustrating. (laughs) 
But anyway, I mean, I think the reason I bring that up, and I even read that story, the lava claim, is because I want to know what bothers you guys. You know, I mean, I got to be honest with you. I, I haven't been impressed with a lot of your questions so far. So, but I want to engage people. I want to, you know, I want to, I want to incorporate you guys somehow. So, what's your lava claim? What bothers you? If you're watching this on YouTube, leave a comment. If you're you know, if you want to hit me up on Instagram, let me know. Like, what bothers you? Did you have an annoying thing that happened this week that made you, you made your blood boil? Have you, or is there a standout one from the from the past or the recent past that stands out for you? Let me know. Because I felt, you know, what made me feel actually probably I don't want to say it it, it it like it didn't delete my feelings about it, but was actually like validating was just telling my brother about it and him going, "Oh, dude, I'm boil I'm boiling just hearing it." Um, that probably felt the best. So thanks for that, brother. Man, what else to be said? Dude, I got some... I want to look at your questions again, because, dude, I got some, I got some more silly ones. Dude, one was... One was in, I didn't even know what to do with. I literally just got it today. But people find the old post where I was asking for questions, and they still send me stuff. But, dude, this one dude just sent me a question today that was like... Hey, could you give me a piece of advice, please? I'm jobless. I've sent my CV to a lot of companies and organizations, but they don't even call to interview me. I don't know what to do. Dude, I feel for you, I, I, but I'm not the person to ask. Um, and let me see. I th- I'm going to see if there's some other questions here. i got to navigate. Uh, um, let's see. Really? Dude, fuck it. Dude, fuck it. No, I'll just skip all this crap. Anyway. Dude, I'm worried this might be the first... Like, I told myself when I started this podcast that I would do no editing. Um, the only things I've ever edited out so far is when I've said things that uh, I didn't want to be public information, either other people's names or whatever. But as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, dude, like, I'm really scatterbrained. You know, I'm not sure if the takeaway from this is I need to have a couple bullet points I want to talk about when I sit down. Um, but yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little more flustered on this one than I have in the past, but dude, I think it goes back to what I was talking about, uh, about being on the mic. Like once you get on that wavelength of being self-conscious, it's hard to get off. And even when you find moments like I, you know, I just sort of went on a whole tangent there, but like, as soon as you get swept away, there's almost a, like, you're even aware that you're like, oh, finally I'm fucking getting away from that one thing. And the minute you start, you start stopping your, 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 your fear starts to sort of, you're like, okay, well, I, I saved myself that time. I'm worried I won't have anything else to get to. Dude, it's like swimming from buoy to buoy and uh, just worried that your luck's going to run out. You're going to run out of time. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the worst part, too, is as I go through my week, there's so many times where I think, oh, that'd be a good thing to talk about on the podcast. That'd be a good thing to talk about on the podcast. And I sit down, I have no idea what they are. So maybe I should go down a little uh, uh, memo book as I go throughout the day. Um, if I'm being honest, though, dude, I feel a little sick. I think I was talking about this when I, I said I went for a long run, but I like felt sick after sort of... I, I was kind of dehydrated, but too much like heat exposure, sun exposure or something like that. But um, just yesterday, me and my girlfriend drove up to uh, Healdsburg, California, and uh, rented this like... I don't know. We went through this service, but like you just, you rent, um, it's like an inflatable canoe. I don't know what you call it, but like we went down the Russian river and it went by pretty quickly. We, I think we did like, you know, you do a few miles, three and a half miles, four miles. I don't know. 
which you can do in a couple hours. And even if though we stopped for lunch and kind of spent some, like got in the water briefly, you know, it went by super quick, but I still felt sick. Like I got home and I just, I had a headache and today I went to math class and I had to go home in between that and uh, my afternoon class, like take a, take like an hour nap because I, I just felt sick. I had this pounding headache. So, um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what time we're at. I don't even know how long I've been talking for, but, um, I'm, I'm feeling myself sort of wind down here. So, uh, uh, I won't bother you guys. Uh, thanks so much for listening so far. Uh, like I said, I've enjoyed it. Uh, I look forward to doing more. And, uh, in the meantime, uh, you can find me online. All my social handles are at this is M X O X O. And, uh, I've been telling people that if you want to submit questions or if you have something want to say that you want me to see, you can tag it with the hashtag this is M pod. But also subscribe on Spotify and uh, subscribe on YouTube if you want to. Um, new episodes are going to come out every week. And it's taken a while. The review process is hard to predict and, and it's been rejected for technical reasons. But, um, you know, I got to change artwork or whatever the hell. But I've resubmitted to Apple Podcast a couple of times. So it'll be on all those services soon. And um, and also, you know, if you like this, if you, if, if you want to share it with someone, please do. Uh, I'd like to see the audience grow. Um, and, uh, so like I said, I mean, if you want to share it with all your friends, like on social media, that's cool. But I, I think it would be a lot cooler too. If you thought of one person that you really thought would like this and just shared it with them. And, uh, actually my brother just texted me. Um, I'm trying to see if he has anything to say. Um, oh, I literally just sent him that story, the lava claim. And, uh, that's funny that he's texting me about it right now. Um, he said he liked it. So so uh, hopefully you guys liked it also. But yes, The Lava Claim by Brad Sansenbacher. Thanks for giving me permission to read that. Um, otherwise, yeah, share the podcast with one person, and uh, hopefully we'll grow this thing over time. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, we'll do it again soon. So ciao for now.